Hey there, Omaha. Welcome into another episode of Restaurant Hoppin'. Uh, I think this is going to be a really cool episode today just because we get a chance to speak to someone who I think we can talk a lot about restaurants, we can talk a lot about food, but I think this is a conversation that's going to really dip into just how food is more important than just food, how a restaurant isn't just four walls and a kitchen, how it's all these lives that come together to create something special for guests. And speaking of guests, mine today, his name is Kevin Shin. He, uh, he owned and operated um, Bread and Cup in the Lincoln Haymarket area from 2009 to 2017. Story is just really incredible, just jumping into the restaurant industry kind of blind um, in your early 40s and, and owning a successful restaurant for almost a decade. And now he's an author of Bread and Cup, Beyond Simple Food and Drink. It's a book that I think I buzzed through in about three or four days. I was just fascinated by it. So long-winded intro. Kevin, welcome to the show. Oh, Dan, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think to start off and really just give everyone a baseline, especially because this is, I think my listeners are mostly Omaha people, so they might not have gotten to experience Bread and Cup. And actually, Bread and Cup is... It's one of those like I wish I could go back restaurants. There there are so many that I talk to people over the years and I hear about these places that have now closed and I'm just like, man, I would give so much to be able to go back and experience that and just reading about the vibe at Bread and Cup and hearing testimonials from people. I even have a really good friend the other day who's who told me he just had his most transformative meal at Yoshitomo since bread and cup like that was his place so can you kind of for the listeners can you kind of lay out what bread and cup was in its heyday and what it represented what type of food you served yeah i describe it like this i created the restaurant i wanted to go to Mm -hmm. Um, i have had fortune to travel quite a bit all over the world and um Bread and Cup was kind of an amalgamation of all of those experiences. And um, I loved how people would eat around the world. And I, I was frustrated with how Americans ate. And the way I describe it is Americans tend to like their food like they like their gasoline. They want it cheap. They want a lot of it. <laughs> And and much of the world, especially in Europe, they don't eat that way. They don't think that way. Right. Food is pleasure. Food is community. Food is an experience. And I wanted to create that kind of place. My mission was not to create the best food in town. My mission was stated this. I wanted to create an outstanding environment for conversation and reflection. That was my mission. Because setting the table is much, much more than just putting good food down there. It's creating, like you said, an experience, an environment, and an ambiance, a vibe that people feel drawn into and they're attracted to. So that that's really what we set out to do. And I think we succeeded. Um, we succeeded right away because uh, people would come into our restaurant and say, oh my gosh, I do not feel like I'm in Lincoln here. And I knew what they meant. You know, because we were bringing something to the market that was completely different than what people had had seen in 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 our hometown. Uh, students, international students, people that travel, they they would come in and say, "Oh, it feels like home. 
oh, this feels like a restaurant back in you know, Italy or France or where these students were from. And, uh, but the first year was a little difficult. Well, more than a little, diff- very difficult because we got open late, got open um, in August instead of April. So that moved us into the winter months rather quickly. We didn't have any um, uh, traction then. And so those winter months were very, very hard. But we made it through, uh, saw a turnaround in March when the weather started turning uh, turning warmer. And every month then just began to increase. Then I got a call from a food writer at the Omaha World Herald in August saying we would like to do a, a, a story on you. And I want to send a photographer down. And I said, will you be coming with her? And she said, no, I've been in twice. And I started to freak out <laughs> <laughs> because I got online and read her reviews. I'm like, man, this she's, you know, you, you. You can't uh, pass one by on her, mm-hmm. but whenever she called for the interview, I realized, okay, I think we, I think we did good. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, I think the article came out in August or September. Boom, we just our um, trajectory that continued for another six years, and we, I had to print out um, directions for my staff when the phone rang because again, this was kind of pre internet and uh maps and how do i get there from omaha and so that's awesome that year we were we were voted one of omaha's top 10 restaurants and not even not in, in omaha, omaha. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah that's something special that's a little little nutshell um i think there was a you actually you were on a podcast with um brian o'malley several months ago that I've I've listened to a couple different times because it was a really fascinating conversation. But one of the things that I love that you said on that podcast that I think kind of helps describe what Bread and Cup was, was you talked about how you, you guys' goal was not to turn tables. So many restaurants, they want to get diners in, feed them, and get them out because as soon as that table is empty, they can fill it with another diner. And the more diners that you bring in, the more money you right. get. So it's just like there's this constant churn. You're trying to move people in and out. And that was never the goal of Bread and Cup. Bread and Cup was more come in, enjoy yourself, have an experience. If you want to just stay for 20 minutes and have a quick meal, that's totally fine. If you want to stay and have a conversation, if you just want to stay, have some personal reflection, if you want to bring a book and just hang out for a couple hours, you're welcome to do that too. But that obviously is a very different concept than we're used to seeing in restaurants. So, you know, you kind of talked about those early months before – the World Herald writer, who I'm assuming was Sarah Baker Hansen, um, came in. Did people, like, were they kind of confused when they first came into Bread and Cup? Did they oh, yeah. understand what it was, or uh, were they like, what yeah. is this place? I, I could tell a new guest right off the bat, and I taught my servers to um, to recognize this, because when people would walk in, their eyes would immediately go up, and they would look at the lights or the artwork or the the uh, the saying the quote on the wall above the kitchen and just watch their eyes and and they would they would gaze that's how i could tell we had a new new guest um our entrance was rather awkward because we didn't have a back door and so the bathrooms were there and sometimes the cisco delivery was there and and coolers were there so it was a little awkward sometimes for people to come in and did i come in the right door 
And I assured them, yes. Uh, but, you know, a restaurant is a business, and it needs to make money. Right. I mean, that's that's a given, right? The 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 what's up for grabs is how's that money made. That's uh, that's where you can diverge. Typically, it is churn and burn. You know, get as many people in and out as possible. That's one way to do it. My philosophy was: the faster I move a person, the less they want to spend. And I always taught. Also, last tables are the best tables. So let's say someone comes in at 9.50 and we close at 10 o'clock on Saturday night. Um, More times than not, that guest tips double, if not more, because they they realize that uh, we we went the extra mile for them. And... uh, so that that was our philosophy. We just we didn't want to just turn and burn tables. We wanted to create an experience, knowing that in the long run that would pay off. Mm-hmm. Another thing, one last thing that I want to bring up to just kind of set the ambiance for what Bread and Cup was before we kind of dive in more deeply is, I think you know I I just loved reading through this book. You talked about all these different like special dinners you would have. You had, you know, a pasta night, you had a pizza night, but the favorite one that I loved about reading, and this is something I wish so badly that I could go back and take a part in, was you had these these market meals every week where you would go to the Haymarket Farmer's Market in the morning, peruse whatever, uh, you know, local produce was available on that day, fill up this green wagon, take it back to the restaurant, and then design a three-course meal just based off what you had that day. So you don't you go to the farmer's market, and you don't even know what you're going to be cooking that Correct. night. So guests have no idea, but they come in, and they just, they're just they thrilled by these hyper-seasonal ingredients, and you just kind of get to unleash your creativity on them. When you look back, do you think those market meals kind of like define what Bread and Cup was? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, what we faced with such a small space we had less than 2,000 square feet to deal with and so in a small kitchen with just a, a reach-in cooler we didn't have a walk-in uh, we had to make sure our inventory was dynamic and that we could turn it over and over quickly uh, what that meant was we we would have to have a very narrow menu because we we couldn't stock up uh, we didn't didn't have a freezer that we could store a bunch of things in. And so that's where the idea of different meals, we couldn't have pasta six days a week. We, we could do pasta really well on Thursday, or for, I mean Friday, and we, we couldn't do pizza every day of the week, but we could do it on Thursday. And so then that uh, idea really was forged on Saturday night when the uh, the market meal was uh, – implemented here we have this resource of the farmer's market two blocks from our our restaurant and nobody's nobody's utilizing it like we had envisioned and and um so i the first week i remember i went and shopped and gathered and and i had bags and then realized i i've got to get something (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've got to either get help or a bigger box or or a wagon. Uh-huh. So I went out and I hardware store and bought a wagon. And then that wagon became the um 
kind of the marketing piece of our of our restaurant and um people would always ask oh chef what's what's in your what, what's what's on the menu tonight and it, it became a regular weekly routine of people even stopping hey chef can i get a picture of your of your wagon because we would very purposely i mean you may have seen some of the pictures in the book oh yeah very purposefully create like a little um, cornucopia, cornucopia yeah. of it and it was but it was so fun for us um because it was dynamic every week and so we we did not know what we were what we we're going to make com- coming in so my chefs and i we would walk the market we would come uh this this is as it developed in, in the uh, ensuing years. We would walk together. We would come back, and in we we had a time limit of thirty minutes, and it was usually right around um, eight forty five nine o'clock. We would come back and we would set that menu in thirty minutes, and then because um, we had a full restaurant and a brunch menu and a full kitchen, so the our me and the night cooks we we just went took a nap or something until about noon and then came back and we hit it hard and and prepped that three-course meal. That is just so incredibly unique and so special. But so is your story. And I think to understand what Bread and Cup really was, I think we need to look at you individually because the way that you got into the restaurant industry is backwards, incredibly (laughs) unique. Yes. So... At age 41, yeah. you have no culinary training. Right. You have never worked as a cook. You have never owned or managed a restaurant. You were actually in collegiate ministry. Mm-hmm. To most people, I think especially in the industry, who know how hard it is to cut your teeth and how much work you have to do to you know, figure out what it takes to be in a restaurant, opening a restaurant in that state just sounds like pure crazy talk. But you obviously made it happen, yeah. and you made it successful. You go into this in a lot better detail in the book, but I think just for the listeners right now, where did the idea even get into your head that I'm at this you know, this stage in life and I want to start a restaurant? I'm going to do it. Like a lot of people think that. Mm-hmm. Not many people do it, and even fewer do it successfully. How? Yeah. How, how did you do it? Okay, let's rewind to let's rewind. 1990. That's when I moved to Nebraska with my late wife, uh, who passed last year. Uh, she, uh, but we we came here for a first job, but we loved to travel, and we loved to stay in bed and breakfasts along the way. Uh, probably would have been Airbnb now if uh, we were, had it to, to do over again. Um but we always found ourselves with this same conversation. What would you like about that place? What would you not like about that place? And sometimes our friends would think we're being like snotty or picky. or. But over time, we realized that there's something in our DNA about hospitality. And we loved uh, hosting guests. And especially in our collegiate ministry, we we hosted students all the time in our house. We had students live with us for a summer or a semester or both, or uh, I think you know, we had 12 or 15 people live with us over the course of several years. And so that included food and that included conversation. And, uh, but I came to a point in my, just my faith life where I felt like I was growing stagnant. And, you know, here I'm, I'm the guy that's supposed to have the answers, and then 
I'm, I'm questioning myself. And uh, a thought occurred to me one day. It's like, why are some of my best conversations in bars? Why are some of my best conversations with people in bars? And uh, I thought, you know, I think maybe people just feel more free there. Yeah, I can see that. And so that question bugged me for, for quite some time. Then as as the years progressed and I, I this inner angst continued to grow and then 9-11 hit and like, oh, man, what what's our world coming to? And, and I, I started taking this restaurant idea more seriously because I thought, could I create something like that? Could I create a place that feels good, feels safe, feels vulnerable, maybe, mm-hmm. to use that big word? Um, long story short, decided in 2004 to end, end my career and go all in and open this restaurant. That was a place for conversation and reflection, not, not the best food in town. And I... And as I made that decision, people would ask me, that seems like a huge, huge transition. And I said, in some ways, yes, but at the core of myself, no, because I'm still taking care of people. I'm just taking care of college kids in this context. Now I'm taking care of guests in my community in a new context. That's what I bring to the table. That's what I bring to the restaurant is I, I want my guests to feel taken care of. And that's Sadly, I think what's missing right now and because of the pandemic is nobody's getting taken care of. You're just, here's your food and go. And there's no sense of, of I don't know, space and care and direct concern that you can give to a guest. Mm-hmm. And on that concept of hospitality, um, you had this quote in the book that I absolutely love that you say, what drives me most is hospitality. It's my position that if we did not treat you well, it doesn't matter how good our food is. A couple of years ago, I think I would have disagreed with that. I, I was that type of person who I was like, if you serve me a great meal, I don't care if it, I'm in an alley, if you're serving it to me on a trash can lid. Like, I just love food so much. I, I, I'll take it. But I think as I've gone to more restaurants that have really concentrated on creating that experience, whether it's a special tasting menu or it's, you know, creating a very individual experience for, for each table, for each diner or a place that encourages you to stay and linger. And, you know, they're intentionally spacing out how much time between each course because they want you to stay longer. They're not turning tables. I've come to realize that so much of dining out Yes, the food is fantastic, but so much of it is what you talk about is creating that atmosphere and creating a space where people just feel comfortable and where they want to be. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit further? And how, how did you, especially in a environment where people didn't really understand that, how did you create that and help them accept that this is something, this is a different dining experience than you know but you're going to love it. When I think about the table, there are two main components. There's the food and the guest, mm-hmm. which is permanent. The guest. Mm-hmm. The, the food is temporary. Yes. You're going to eat that, and 
it will be, be digested and gone in a matter of hours. The guest is permanent. And that was the, that was the order that I wanted my staff and my restaurant to, to hold. It's the guest that's primary and our food is secondary because we, I want, I want those folks around my table after, at the end of the meal think, oh, that was great. And they're going to go home now and they're going to remember that and now and take pictures of it and post it. And now we're a part of that memory, that story, that 40th anniversary or that 21st birthday or whatever. And, and that it just comes down to a value statement or a value judgment that um, I, I never wanted to put my food as the most important thing. It, it, it's got to be important. I mean, that's, that's a given. But the subtle nature of making sure that it's second place to my guest is really important. Well, I think in, in part of what goes into that is a, a concept that you talk about in the book is see something, hear something, smell something. Those Before are, you ever taste a bite of my face. And see, that's crazy. I think that's, yeah. it seems so backwards, just like on its face. When you think of a restaurant, the first sense that you think of, taste, no question. You, before you're even getting to taste, you're introducing or engaging, excuse me, three of the other senses. What, like, where did that philosophy come from? And how did Bread and Cup engage those other senses before you even put food down in front of someone? Um, well, I, I think sense, my senses are really um, probably the key to my gateway to my heart, you know, um, aroma triggers memories for me the smell of wood smoke uh, the smell of a freshly painted room oddly takes me back to junior high school at the end of the summer we'd go back to school and the janitors had painted all the halls and the rooms and that that aroma just takes me back there so I already have that that category for what aroma can do so when we uh, I, I met with the architect to design the space, he said, uh, what is it that you want people to experience? And so I told him that I wanted to see something, hear something and smell something before they ever tasted the food. So he loved that because then he could design things the way those three things laid out. We put the bread oven as close to the front door as possible. Genius. Just pure genius. Because fresh bread smells amazing, yeah. Yeah. and it t it takes a while to make, so it just like yeah. immediately you're hitting people with that thought of this is not going to be a rushed process. Right, you you can enjoy yourself right. here. Right, and uh, you know I said earlier about people coming in and their eyes going up. The other thing I could watch their their lips, or they hear them say, "Oh my god, it smells so good in here." <laughs> that like, boom, we did it. You uh -huh. know, <laughs> we're all ready. We're already uh, mission accomplished right there, and uh, and but because we were cooking all day different things, you know, the bread in the morning, the cinnamon rolls, the the soup in the morning uh, at lunch, and you know the smells changed, the dynamic of the of the aroma even changed, which made it even more fun. Cookies in the afternoon. Oh man, yeah. Um, 
Another quote that you had in the book that I really, really like and plays into this idea of hospitality is, popularity is fleeting. It's something I don't have much jurisdiction over, but I do have authority over whether I care about the customer's pleasure. And this is something that I've found a lot of great restaurants share this philosophy. And I see it in the way that they interact on social media. I see it when I have the chefs or the owners in and I speak to them on this podcast and that, yeah, it's great if a lot of people go into the restaurant. Obviously, you know, business is good. If they're getting great reviews on Yelp and everything, like, that's fantastic. That's not a bad thing. But they are more concerned if they just get the one guest, if they just had one guest in that day, that that guest leaves happy. And they made that guest day just a little bit better. How, maybe it was just natural for you, but like how hard of a mindset is that to to grasp onto? Because I, I just, especially in today's world where everyone is all about, you know, rush, 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 make money, make money. That idea is just, it's it's unique, right? Oh, right, right. And I, I think it's it's counterintuitive because, one, the main model out there is just turn and burn, you know, get in and out and fast. And I think he, there was even a national chain years ago that had a slogan, get in, get out, get on with your life. What a terrible, <laughs> terrible <laughs> yeah. slogan for, you know, for a place of hospitality. Now, Granted, what they were doing is they're just getting food into your hands and getting you out of their way so they can get, you know, and that's their model. It's just not my model. So it, it, is it a right or wrong? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say yay or nay. I would just say it's not mine. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to I don't want to do business that way. And, um, but I think it I think it also stems from my experience coming from a, a, a ministry background into the hospitality world that I didn't have a lot of negative examples or bad chefs that I worked with or, or uh, obstacles to overcome. No, I, I was able to start with a clean slate. And even with my design process with my architect saying, this is how, this is the experience that I want people to have. Uh, I wanted people to be able to see inside the restaurant before they ever stepped inside. Because again, that brings a barrier down. If if there's no there's no window, there's only a door, and like, do we go in? <laughs> there's no menu. I, do you want to go in and see? Let's just ask for a menu. Th- there's already a commitment there that you're you're having to overcome. For us, we had a huge front glass entryway we put our menu up there we had one two probably six different windows people could walk the perimeter see inside get a sense of the vibe um, and so we were able to design the experience that the atmosphere and the uh, building to fit the experience now there are and we talked about this a little bit but i want to dive into it a little bit deeper there are a lot of people who are passionate about hospitality and there are a lot of different ways to uh, convey that passion and really, you know, be there for other people. Opening a restaurant is a very unique way to do it. Why was that the route that you chose to take? Because clearly, you know, you've talked about it, like serving good food is obviously very important and it's something that you love, 
but you are about making people happy first and foremost and creating a space for people. So what was it about this, this concept of the restaurant being that vehicle for hospitality that so attracted you to it? Uh, being in a ministry, a vocational ministry position, uh, there becomes a scarlet letter on you. Like, oh, he's the paid guy. Oh, he, oh, don't swear around him. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's like, oh, he's the insurance salesman. I don't want to buy, you know, just the, what's it, whatever he's selling. There, there's always that sense of he's different. He's not like one of us. I bet the stork brought his babies, you know, that kind of judgment. <laughs> Uh, and I assure you, Stork did not bring my babies. So I, I had this, I had this dichotomy. I'm like, here's my ministry world that felt so kind of limiting and restricting. But then, like I said, here's my world out here with the conversations and the bars and restaurants and shows and music, and like, they're very different. They're very, very different. And I was just inclined toward one direction to say, you know, if I'm going to put all my energy in the back half of my life into something, I want to, I want to see if it will work. And I wanted to get out of this four walls of what was called uh, church ministry and get into the real world and see, can I, can I interact with my community? And, And that's, that's what we really wanted Bread and Cup to do. We wanted it to be a part of our community. It was definitely a part of the university. It was definitely part of the Haymarket um, and I think the broader community of Lincoln and even Omaha and then surrounding you know, guests would come from Des Moines and Kansas City just, just to come to our place. And so we took that very seriously. Now, to get guests to travel that far, obviously, having a great atmosphere is a huge part of that. But you've got to have good food, too. You right. Usually, for a trip like that, you have to have fantastic food. And you mentioned you've been cooking for a long time for, for, different, you know, uh, for different people who are living with you. You mentioned you've traveled a lot, mm-hmm. so you've experienced a lot of different types of food. But how did you, you know, th- there's a big step up between being a home cook and oh, yeah. owning a restaurant. How did right. you level up your cooking game to the point where you felt comfortable um, serving the food that you would serve, you know, your family or guests at your home to food in a restaurant? Yeah. Uh, it took a while. It did. It. I didn't. I didn't wear a chef coat for about two years. I didn't. Certainly did not refer to myself as a chef because I just felt like I hadn't earned it. I didn't go to school. No experience. So I can't call myself that. We had one girl that um, was going to culinary school, and I called her chef because she was the most <laughs> experienced <laughs> education-wise. <laughs> but I called her chef, and, and uh, uh, but slowly I, I kind of stepped into that. And there was a lot of trial and error for sure, uh, but I did, I did take – it took about two years to get the restaurant open. And so I, I worked for 18 months in a catering service. And that's where I learned scaling menus, costing, um, all that kind of bean counting aspect of of the business, and then just watching people how the the you know how the staff would scale up a meal from twelve people to forty people, and, and 
I built uh, a huge recipe book of uh, spreadsheet style um, recipes where they would they were basically a, a spreadsheet that would we could calculate the uh, the difference. So, like for example, we we would make two to three, two to four dozen cinnamon rolls a day. Okay, but on farmers market weekend we'd make 12 dozen a day so i had this great little spreadsheet that you could just you know the bakers could just point in um or plug in the number and then it would just say okay here's your ingredients and uh but all of that was time learned at the catering service now how do you go about setting the menu for the first time i'm sure part of this is trial and error i'm sure it evolved a lot over the years but you know you kind of talked about and you mentioned in the book how much you love making pasta and you consider that, you know, a labor of love, but you can't do it every day right. because it's, it's just, it's, right. it's not possible, you know, just in this operation. So how, how do you, how do you set the menu to not to have things that you love to cook and things that you think people are going to find delicious, but you can also produce every day and they're realistic. They're not going to burn people out. How, how do, how do you set that original menu? Well, I, Coming from the name, bread and cup, bread is the simplest of food. And you, you travel around the world, and almost every culture has some kind of bread, and it's representative or indigenous to their region. You know why you'll see rye bread in colder parts of the world, like Russia. Uh, rye is more cold tolerant than wheat. I mean, so that's what they had and what they used. Um, you you see French baking, uh, and it's so fussy because the French are fussy. Mm-hmm. You know, it just represents their their culture. Um, you know, flatbreads and tortillas, and uh, every almost every culture has some bread component, starch like that. Uh, so I, I wanted a menu that had the simplest of food and then the simplest of drink. That's the essence of the of the name. Uh, so we started the day with, at one point, we were baking 90 to 110 loaves a day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, and, and go through most of those. We'd give um, the remainder to the food bank or a, a shelter uh, the, uh, the next day. But we, we started with bread because, and James Beard kind of, affirms this he, he said the first thing he would do in judging a restaurant is look at their bread because often rolls dinner rolls they would be hard or they'd be crusty or, and he thought if they don't take care of that element they there how many other little things did they not take care of that's so smart and so we thought let's start the day with bread and then build from there so everything, bread and everything that went with it, we you know we made our breakfast breads, we made our sandwich breads, we made our uh, baguettes and and for cheese and wine. So bread was the foundation of everything, and then building on top of that with with simple foods, uh, soup, um, simple sandwiches. We had one menu to begin with, and we morphed that fairly quickly because the demand of the market was. You don't have a dinner menu, you know, and people didn't, they just didn't want soup and sandwich at, at night. So that was one way we, we morphed and um, kind of expanded. 
Um, but yeah, originally it was just going to be one one small menu, and then we ended up with like seven or eight. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think something else that you have to balance is cooking what the public wants and what the public mm. demands. Oh yeah, but also cooking what you want to cook and what's important to you. And you you touch on this a little bit in that podcast that you did with Brian, where you guys didn't originally have a burger no. on the menu, <laughs> but people kept coming in. Yeah. They kept asking mm-hmm. about a burger and mm-hmm. asking about a burger. And I don't think you were even averse to having a burger, but it wasn't something that you had originally. So, and I, I can just tell the way that you're responding to this question, this is something that really, it touched, maybe not touches a nerve is the right way to say it, but, but it resonates with you. Yes. How do you find that balance yes. between saying, this is what I love mm-hmm. to cook, this is what I think is delicious, and having, you know, the customer come in and say, I want this, give me this. Like, where's that fine right. line? Well, again, it's a business, so if, uh, I've got to make money. If I don't, then... I'm just a jerk, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, or an idiot. Uh, so I, I always have to be aware of the guest. And we pivoted several times. Like the very first one was the, the simple sandwich menu at night was not adequate. So um, we had to pivot then and figure out how, what do we do at night? How do we change that? Um, at one point, we pivoted to becoming to adding breakfast because we were open in the morning, but we were realizing people wanted more than just pastries. So we thought, how hard would it be to add a fried egg to to that toast? And uh, so we did that. Um, so when we when you change to to respond to the customer, I believe it has to be both and you know it, if if a thousand people said you know you just don't have frosted flakes and you just need frosted flakes and a thousand people pony up to that i'm not serving frosted <laughs> flakes i'm not, not going to do that uh but if people said you know you don't have a burger now that's a little different because seeing now i can craft a burger and, I, and we ended up doing that, make a brioche bun, real high-quality grind of meat, made our own pickles, made our own mustard, made our own ketchup, uh, pickled our own uh, red onions. So we made this burger fit us. But then the guest was really, really happy. But if if I'm just going to sell out to Frosted Flakes that I'm not making, I'm just buying and you know passing it on, that's not... That's where you can draw the line. So I think there's always there's always the need to step toward the guest, always, uh, because they won't step your way, um, especially in Lincoln. It's a very very conservative, uh, cautious food town. Not not in any way like Omaha or Kansas City or you know, larger metro areas where people are much more. Um, open, adventurous. Uh, and so I could either just be mad at that or I can step toward my market. And really what ended up our, being ultimately our demise was the uh, the market no longer demanded what we were supplying. And, and so despite the pivot, despite the changes, the the guest was was no longer coming, and we we 
just like the, um, you know, the writing on the wall was during a Garth Brooks concert. We had eight people show up. So that, okay, that's, there's no amount of pivoting, changing, adapting. And that's sadly when it had to come to an end. Um, you go into this in a lot greater detail in the book, but you know, you kind of talk about how one of the things that really hurt bread and cup and, you know, maybe played a large part in its eventual closure was the development of the new rail yard haymarket area, um, in, in downtown Lincoln. I think, you know, that seems like almost the the counter thought that most people would have. Most oh, yeah. people, most people would say, "Oh, that you know, they put in a brand new arena. You've got, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, the rail yard is awesome. That's a place where people go and they hang out. Like that would bring more business to your area. That should be great for you." Can you kind of explain why that wasn't the case and yeah. and kind of what happened there? Yeah, that was the thought. Even even for me, I thought, "Well, this how how could this not help?" It did a couple of things that were very obvious and noticeable one it changed the perception of the area whereas before the the arena the event district our little hay market acted like a neighborhood you had easy access at five o'clock people went home and all that parking on that north end was mine so you could come in park right in front of my restaurant come and spend two hours a couple of bottles of wine walk right to your car and that was that was the case for several years when the arena opened people said oh there's no place to park well there was there was a lot of places to park they they added uh some lots several um, garages so that it was a perception over access people would blame it on on access there's no there's no access to it there's no parking but it really ended up being a perception thing that was people were bumping up against and slowly we watched our business just drop off um we'd do okay on a event night but at 7 30 when the show starts you're empty and then what do you do with your staff do you stay open after and uh the other thing people thought was, oh, so many new restaurants and all the competition. That that wasn't the case because um, we were there and other other businesses were, were suffering as well like we did. And the, the market just was not, I don't know if it was just oversaturated or, or what, but it, you know, right down in the rail yard it did fine because there was, there was a lot of cheap beer and cheap food, but uh, that wasn't what we were about. And I think we, we ran up against that. And there just wasn't enough of a customer base in that setting that would make it work for us. And so we had to, had to call it quits. Well, I think part of it, too, is just, you know, when you think of, hey, let's, you know, we're, we're going to the Garth Brooks concert. That's at 7 o'clock. Let's get down. You know, let's get off work. Let's get dressed up. Let's go down to you know, go down to the Haymarket at six or whatever. We'll grab dinner. We'll get to the concert at six thirty. you know, begin our seats, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. 
that in and out process, that's not what bread and cup was about. It wasn't, let's just go grab something and run. It was about coming and sitting down and enjoying it. And I'm sure that you still had customers who valued and prioritized that, but just kind of the overall vibe of the area changed too. Yeah. And the regular, our regular guests no longer came down because they didn't want to fight the traffic. Um, We used to do a wine night on Tuesday. We're always full. We would take all of our open bottles of wine and just line them up on the bar and say uh, $4 a pour. Oh, that's incredible. And, and just get rid of all of our open bottles. People would come in come in, and and Tuesday was always a fun night, but that went away when the arena opened because it was, you know, people didn't want to come down. They didn't think they could park and liked parking in front of the restaurant. and All that parking's gone, so. So something that I find so interesting about about you and about this book is you, your restaurant closed, and that's that that sucks. Like that's and it was based off things that were really outside of your control. You know, yeah. like we've talked about. I think that's such a painful moment for, and not even restaurant owners, but just any business owner yeah. who loses their business. It's a very, you know, that's a very tough thing that really like cuts you to the core. I think most people, the last thing they want to do is share those emotions and those thoughts with the public, but yet you wrote a book about it, and you reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I'd love to come on the podcast, and I jumped at that opportunity. I was like, yes, let's do this. What kind of inspires you to to tell the story of Bread and Cup, and instead of just focusing on, oh, yeah, these are the good times, these are the good times, and, oh, yeah, we got screwed at the end, but, you know, don't, don't worry about that, but... You are open about yeah. about the struggles too. What inspires you to to be so open like that? Uh, well, my friend Summer Miller, who wrote New Prairie Kitchen, she's a friend of mine. I I um, she featured me in her book, and I asked her opinion about writing 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 a book. What what it would take, and she said, "Well, if you're going to write a memoir, write it all, because people will tell if you're faking it or not." I took that real seriously because there was, you know, we were so, um, such a part of the, the, the closing of bread and cup was, was so public that I thought if, if, if I leave anything out, it will, it will be evident and I don't want to do that. Um, but also there's just something in my DNA that, um, I, I, I don't know what makes it unique about me is I feel like my voice might help you hear yours. And if you've ever had that moment where you come across a book or an author or, or speaker and they say something and they articulate what you felt for years, but you just couldn't, you just couldn't verbalize it. You just, or, you know, you thought, and then boom, there it is. I feel like that's part of my role as a writer now is if I can say it for you that you couldn't say it yourself, you can then pick up that and take it and go, go with it and not let it, you know, not let it hold you, hold you down. So you you see this guy did it. I think I can do it. And that's, I don't know. I don't, again, I don't know where that comes from uniquely, but I do believe that I, that's something I possess that I, I want to steward. And I think something that's so important on that note 
is another thing that you mentioned on the podcast with Brian is that this is this is not a book about a restaurant. Ultimately, the restaurant is kind of the vehicle in which the right. story is told. But you described the book and really your story is it's more about hope and giving exactly. hope to people that yes. you can have this dream. You can accomplish this dream. You can have something great and you can lose it. And then there's still more there. Like your life did not end with the restaurant closing. There's more for you out there. And I think that especially now, you know, it, we are living in just wild times, especially, you know, with coronavirus, with everything that's going on right. politically. I think that is a message that really resonates with people in this moment. Um, I guess how much did that thought play into you know, your thought process of writing this book and that, you know, it's not just about telling the story right. of Bread and Cup, but it's about providing that hope for people as well. Yes. When I was deciding whether or not to write the book and reaching out to people like Summer and, and others, uh, I asked a friend, how does, who's, who's an editor actually, he said, how do you know what to write? How do, how do you know what projects to take on? And he said, well, I, one, have to ask, is it a story that needs to be told? He said, two, Am I the one that tell it? Three, do I have what it takes to get it across the finish line? Is it is it a project that requires so much research and time and travel? And, you know, I've got to weigh all of those three things. I could not get past question number one. I just didn't think it was a story worth telling because I thought, who wants to read about a uh, restaurant that failed? And But I had a, a couple of very encouraging persistent people would circle back around and say you thinking about writing that book yet and that that encouragement but also the uh, my wife turned um, gravely ill that was the it was a turning point for me like what am I going to what do I want to leave behind uh, from this experience, and um, so she she got sick. She was diagnosed with a third occurrence of ovarian cancer in November of 2018. Was in the hospital six weeks later that the cancer had already started to invade, um, creating um, anyway. Uh, it was advancing pretty quickly, and I was deciding whether or not I was going to write this book or not. And and through her illness and where I was in life that at that point, I think I've got to write it because I don't think it's a, about a restaurant that failed because what I was going through with her dying was my own sense of hope. What's going to happen? You know, th- I didn't sign up for this. I, I thought we would, you know, grow old together and, you know, die in the old folks' home, but no, at that, at age sixty-one, that I didn't, I didn't sign up for that. And and so she, you know, um, she was a part of me rethinking that. What is this story about? And there's a big chapter in there about cancer. And my my editor uh, in the first round, she said, you know, that's about fifteen thousand words. Can we get that down to about? <laughs> oh boy that's a lot of edits yeah, yeah. A, a well fifth. you know it was it was such a big part of 
our story. It was a third of our marriage. It was um, a large part of, because you know, she was a direct part of the restaurant. and and But I, I just felt like once I saw what the story was, and, it, and especially now as we're coming about uh, a year later from this release, I'm starting to see the book have even more relevance to people that aren't just in the restaurant business, but that businesses are failing or, or losing their jobs. Um, that's always going to happen. You know, you look, you look at the mall, you know, Sears is gone. Chuck E. Cheese is gone. <laughs> I know who, who else is going to go under? It's not just, it's not just COVID it's times, times change. And, and I resolved very, very quickly. I was not going to be mad at the, at the market. It's not going to be mad at the public or bitter because it's not their fault, you know. I was not providing a product that the market demanded, and that's business. Um, what it has done is now led me to a new place where I can pr- pr- promote a, a story of hope, but then also look for the new future. And uh, I got a story I want to tell you, if that's okay. Do we have oh, absolutely, okay. yeah. Um, so the book came out January 29th of last year. Okay. We had a great little launch party at Francie and Finch bookstore bookshop in Lincoln and was lining up interviews like this and appearances and book signings and, uh, and then COVID hit and it just shut all of that down. So here I've got a big stack of books Boxes and boxes of books. What do I do with them? Well, it was, uh, yeah, May of this year. I had some friends that knew me from the restaurant, and they asked me, hey, we're supposed to be in London for our 25th anniversary. Would you be willing to make us a meal just like you did at Bread and Cup? Oh, wow. And we'll pay you nicely and... Okay, and I I immediately agreed, and, and so I made him a beautiful five course meal, um, paired it with a couple of wines, but I put it in a box and sent it to their house. They were happy. They posted pictures on socials, and just so pleased. The very next day, somebody asked me, "Hey, it's our thirty fifth anniversary." Next week, would you be willing to do something like that for us? We saw Steve and Kathy's pictures. And, and I thought about it and I said, yes, but I won't put it in a box because that's not what I do. I don't. That, that's, not the, that's not the type of hospitality that Bread and Cup was about. Right, right. And I know some people have to do that. Right. And we probably would have done that had the restaurant been open and we, had, we would have to pivot you have to survive. Again, it's a business. You have to survive to stay in. But again, at what cost? And you know, like you know, the gray plume, they they couldn't pivot to takeout. That's not that's not why you go to the, the the gray plume. And and so I told this this couple. I said, I'll make you a meal, but I won't put it in a box. Would you feel safe and comfortable in my backyard? Because I, I had been doing some improvements um, 
to my yard and my house and my patio and furniture and, you know, I'm not working and COVID's hit. So thank goodness the home improvement stores were an essential business. So I I had this really nice setting and uh, they agreed. And so it was just the two of them. It was socially spaced and distant and, and they felt comfortable. And then 38 dinners later, I finished up in November 7th. And these are all private dinners? All private dinners. Just all by word of mouth? All by word of mouth. That's incredible. All by word of mouth. And all pretty much the same format, five courses in my backyard. Um, average guest stay was about four and a half hours. <laughs> but I have one table all night. I don't have to turn that table. They don't have to leave. And it was an experience like no other. It was the best of both worlds for me because I felt like I was a chef again. I'm planning, I'm setting the table, I'm preparing a meal, I'm, I'm getting things out of my garden, I'm going to the market. It was really, really fun. For the guests, they haven't been out. There's no place to go. And so here's, here's the chef taking care of us, not only cooking, he's serving us the whole night. Um, that's an experience we've never had, even even in non-COVID setting. And it got me to thinking, is this the future, at least short term? Because I believe the future in everything is small, uh, especially in food, because people are going to, you know, we don't go to shows, we don't go to sporting events, you know, that, that the, the crowd... I don't know how long it's going to take for people to feel okay. I think it's going to take some time. It's going to take a long time. But they feel okay in a small group, and I can provide that for them. And so I'm in the process of thinking, is this the future for dining for Chef Kevin Shin right now? There's a lot of of ifs, ands, and questions to answer, but... I know that it's it's a it's a product for now, and people responded to it. I did not even have to advertise it, which is incredible. And here's the, but here's the rub. You know what's the the biggest hurdle is going to be? What's that? City government. See, because the health department doesn't have a category for guys like me. Nope. Can't do it. Guys like you don't exist right now. Right. <laughs> but see, that's where that's where guys like me have to be able to blaze the, the trail and get out in front and see, I'm not waiting for things to get better or get back to. No, I'm moving forward, creating the better future. That if if this little one table backyard restaurant can work legally and under all the right permits that's going to open up doors for others all, all around. They see he did it, and here's how he did it. He did it legally, and he did it correctly, and he worked with the, the locals to come up with new regulations and not just try to fit him into the old ones. And so that's my, that's my uh, I don't know, brass ring out there. Well, just to, as, as a source of encouragement, I had a guest on – a couple weeks ago, I don't know if you've ever been connected with Kane Atkinson. 
Um, but he's he's a really young, up-and-coming chef in Omaha, probably one of the most talented out there. And he has a, um, a company called Kano. And they, they did, uh, prior to the pandemic, they did pop-up dinners everywhere. They would do them in restaurants, Yoshitomo, Block 16, Archetype Coffee, all kinds of stuff like that. Obviously, stuff like that isn't happening right now, but he will just go into people's homes right now. He just he says, you provide us running water and any kind of cooktop. Sometimes they'll even bring in their own grill or something like that, and then you sit down, you have a drink, and you let us do everything. So I think there is something to that model yes. that you know is going to just become more and more prevalent You know, even as the vaccine gets out there and... And, uh, you know, hopefully more people become uh, immunized. That's not the right word, but y- you all know what I mean. Um, against COVID, I think that there still is going to be that space for this new kind of private dining experience. Like, even you just describing it, it just sounds kind of like magical. Like, oh, nice. I, I, yeah. I don't need a pandemic to force me to do that. That's something I want to do regardless of the circumstances. Yeah, it, it, is, a, it, is, a, it is an experience unlike any i've had people say kevin i've never had a meal like this before i've never had an experience like this before and that's why i think the time is right because people still want to get out they still want to socialize but they still want to be taken care of and that can be done at a one table setting or at a 40 table restaurant i'm just now in a place where i can I'm positioned to see if that can work, and I'm going to give it my shot. Well, I I wish you the best in that, and I can tell you for certain, like, we're doing this, and we're recording this right now in January, and there's snow on the ground outside, so this isn't the best time, but I I think that idea sounds amazing, and from what I've heard of Bread and Cup and and the regret that I feel of not being able to experience that in the restaurant, just the thought of, like, having that private experience where I'm getting that food with the chef right there. Like that sounds incredible and amazing to me. So people definitely like stay keyed in on that. Maybe just listen to your friends. I guess it's it's a word of mouth thing right now. I don't advertise. I don't plan to advertise uh, because I don't need to. Um, Not because I don't want the business. It's just, there's only so many nights and I have one table. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't have several that I can fit you in. So I, that's why I've just chosen to, to do it this way and let it, let it kind of work itself organically. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish you the best as that continues to, to flesh out and you try and, you know, figure out exactly what that looks like. And, and listeners, I, I highly encourage you to check out uh, a Bread and Cup Beyond Simple Food and Drink. It's it's Kevin's book, and I'm not just saying this because he's sitting here, but I think it's a, it is a really special book because it's so vulnerable. Like, as I was reading it, and a lot of this book is blog posts that you've posted, but it did really feel like I was just opening up someone's journal, and I was just reading their thoughts. I wasn't, I wasn't reading something, you know, a story – kind of like you talked about that was tailored to highlight the good points or anything like that. This was honest. It was real. And I, I read through the whole thing in, like I said, two or three days and I love food, but this was not like this book talks a lot about food and it mentions food and it has some recipes, but it is not solely about food. It's more about that message of hope and perseverance, I think. So I, I highly encourage anyone 
listening to this, please check it. Is on Amazon? Is that the best place the, to get to, it? The best place to get it is, is 55degrees.us. That's, there we go. That's my personal website. Um, or at Francie and Finch Bookshop in Lincoln. Um, I, I chose to limit the availability because um, Bread and Cup was a local, dr- locally driven. And I, I know I could sell lots more books putting it on am- Amazon, but that's not my goal. My, my goal is to get it into the hands of the right people. A- again, as a sense of connection. And I... I we're almost out of that first printing, so I'm sure there will be another printing of it that will be farther reaching. But right now, the, the fun was just directing people to those two places. Gotcha. I like it. Well, congratulations on the book, Kevin. Thank I, you. I, I know that that is a very tough, difficult process to get through. I've done it a couple times. It's it's really, really hard, and it's a huge achievement. Um, congratulations on the success of the dinners, and I wish you good luck in the future on that. And I thank you so much for coming on this podcast and, and giving me your time. It's truly a blessing. So well, thank you. Maybe in about a year, I'll come back and tell you how the backyard restaurant went. Would love that. <laughs> Let's book it right now. Right. We'll get that booked in. All right. Dan, as thank a, you. Yeah, of course. Uh, as always, Omaha, thanks for eating with us. A Huda Media Production.